Well, if you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll also hand that out so you have something to write on or look at if you prefer. Now, we've been in this section for a while because we started over in Acts chapter 18, giving us the chronology and the setup. And we have Paul has been away from Corinth for maybe two years from what we can gather. And he has restarted his third missionary journey out of Antioch. According to Acts chapter 19, we had Paul going across Asia Minor through the Galatian area, revisiting the various churches he started in his first missionary journey. Then he came to Ephesus, and he's, he was at Ephesus for almost three years. During that time, he wrote the book of Corinthians. So we have now we have the kind of context here. So he's been away for a little while, maybe one, maybe two years at least. And he has received from reports that there's some trouble at the church. So let's just dive right in. We've got some real estate to cover here. Now, those of you who have studied New Testament letters of Paul, it's very easy to just skip over the first three verses. It's very easy because, you know, eh, yeah, we've done this before. Yada, yada, yada. Grace and peace to you. Yada, yada, yada. Whatever. Really? We're going to skip over God's word because we've heard it before. That's a good practice. <clears throat> no, it's not. We, it's kind of interesting if you take the various openings and then compare them, which was what I did this week. I looked at the opening of Romans. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. All but Philippians, Philemon, and the Thessalonians start the same way. Paul asserting his authority as an apostle of Christ. He doesn't do that in Philippians. He doesn't do it in Philemon. He doesn't do it in the two Thessalonian letters. Why? Who knows? But that's his typical pattern. But one of the things that jumped out at me is that in only one other letter does he use this phrase, Paul called by the will of God. And that's 2 Timothy. All the others, he has something different in how he expresses it. Even in 1 Timothy, he calls it by the command of God. Or in other places, he he just simply asserts his... um, position or his authority as an apostle. But right here, in the, according to our chronology, only the fourth letter that we have that Paul has written, he says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's really interesting. Just, I can't put any grandiose meaning to it other than to go, that's a very uh, wonderful way of expressing 
where we are in Christ today, in this church, in this Sunday morning hour. We are here studying this Word of God by the will of God. God brought us here today for a reason. I don't know what it is. You may find out. Uh, it could be just a expression of our obedience, an expression of our commitment to studying the Word of God. But Paul, here, he is saying, number one, he's called, but he's called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to step aside just for one tiny little, completely trivia, meaningless uh, exercise. When we write letters today in the modern world, we have an envelope. And on the envelope, you, if you do it right, you put the stamp on the upper right corner, you put your return address in the upper right left corner, and the two down at the bottom. And if you have some sort of fancy machine like I have at my work, it puts a little barcode above the, uh, the recipient's address so the machines can read it easier. Oh, and you have to use the four extension uh, zip code so he knows which block it goes to in that zip code. They didn't do that back then. They also didn't have a copy machine, so they only had one copy of the letter went out. So how, I mean, I seriously, I actually studied this. How in the world did a letter from me to Caleb get to him? Pony Express. Hmm, Pony Express. <laughs> uh, probably not too far off. I just didn't call it that. But how was it addressed? How was it carried? They didn't have envelopes. The scroll. So, imagine, this is the letter to the Corinthians. Now, I have purposely rolled it up with the writing on the outside. Because now, we can see exactly who it's to. It's at the very top of the scroll. And you may think, oh, well, they didn't use scrolls in Paul's time. They used parchments. Well, yes, and we have found pieces of very ancient parchments, but we don't know what the entire document looked like. All we have are these little fragments that have fallen off and the rest of it is withered away. So let's go all the way back to around 46 AD. Something as long as 1 Corinthians most likely was on a full scroll. Just a very long thing so they could, and they wrote it, you know, vertically, you know, page, section by section. But it had to be rolled up and then addressed with the address is why they started at who it's from, I, Paul, where it's going, to the Corinthian church. And there was no question. And then it was handed, usually handed, to a trusted person to deliver. There was not a postal service, per se. In the imperial levels of Roman government, they had, um, for lack of a better term, they had a postal service. These were messengers designated by the government to move messages from one place to another. That's what their job was. They were the Pony Express of the Roman government. I don't know what you would call them, but 
they were that's what they did but the letters within the church were not done that way most likely someone in Corinth had handed some questions knowing Paul was in Ephesus and wrote to him or sent someone with the questions and they verbalized them to Paul and then Paul wrote the letter back so anyway that's just a little side note because it was one of those as uh, even I was on another one complete wild rabbit trail at least it was what 10:30 last night I walked in and I said this is just fascinating she goes now that's quite a rabbit trail I don't think the class yeah I won't bring it up because it was a really wild rabbit trail but I you know I, I find some of this fascinating uh, where the mind goes when you're looking into these looking under every rock of what's going on in these texts well Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now we looked at this last week briefly. Sosthenes is mentioned in Acts chapter 18 verse 17 as the leader of the Jewish synagogue. Now it's not an uncommon name, so it's possible they're different people, but it just the connection is just too ripe to have the replacement of Crispus, the head of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth, replaced by Sosthenes, taking Paul to trial before the proconsul, losing the trial, and then getting beat up outside the courtroom, for lack of a better description. That Sosthenes is now named in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, and our English text has the word our. I brought this up last week. That's not the Greek word. The Greek word is the. The brother Sosthenes. Why every English translation translates it as our, I have no idea. Neither do many of the scholars. They're going, why did they do it that way? Because he actually says, and the, or the brother, Sosthenes, suggesting it's the one that the people in Corinth knew. Um, why is he mentioned? There are some that suggest that Sosthenes was the scribe. He was the secretary in this that Paul is dictating the letter to, and that's why he's uh, mentioned at the beginning, because there's no other mention of Sosthenes anywhere in the New Testament. So, it goes on. To the church, the ecclesia, of God, not of man, to the ecclesia of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, beginning, or sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, both Lord, their Lord and ours. Now, remember what Paul's dealing with. Um, you have trouble in the Corinthian church. There's unethical, unethical behavior going on. There's divisions in the church. There's arguments. There's, there's incest. There's uh, theft. There's all sorts of horrible things going on in the church. Paul hears about this, and now he's beginning his letter. And he's reminding them who they are. 
They are sanctified. That's the Greek word um, hagiazo. They are sanctified. Hagias is the Greek word for holy. And we find the Greek word hagias also in this verse. Those hagiazo in Christ Jesus called to be hagias. This translation translates it as saints. If you have a different translation in your in front of you, anybody other than the ESV in front of you, the NIV has your holy people, the holy people. Uh, so the King James uses saints. Um, what does yours have there, Carl? I got the NIV, so I think you've already mentioned that. I think I have the right. Of course, there's so many NIVs now. Who knows which one? Yeah, yeah. Called to be holy. And see, called to be holy. Called to be holy. Holy people, but it's the Greek word holy. So the English is trying to translate what they mean by that because he's talking about these people are sanctified and it's the perfect tense, which means it's complete. They have been sanctified already. They are positionally in Christ Jesus. There's no question. If they have given their lives to Christ, they have been sanctified. And they are called to that sanctification. So it's not that they're perfect and they don't have to do anything. They are perfect, but then they're called to continue in the act of what they represent. So while we tend to skip over this verse, just because we want to get to the good stuff, Paul is being very intentional in what he has written here. He's setting them up. For everything that comes after this. And then, what I thought was interesting, if you look at the verse, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while this is written to the Corinthians, he's actually saying it to us too. It's to everybody. You know, you you wonder sometimes, and it's another fascinating rabbit trail that you can go on for literally as a career, if you'd like, of how we got our New Testament. I mean, why did they copy these letters and not others? Because we know there's another letter to the Corinthians mentioned in chapter 5 that is gone. We have no idea where it is. Uh, Even Paul refers to it. So this is actually the second letter to the Corinthians. Maybe for all we know, it's the 12th letter to the Corinthians. But it's the one that we have. It's the one that we have, the one that was copied and distributed and disseminated across the entire empire. So there's thousands of copies of this letter by now. Now obviously we look under the inspiration of Scripture and we we believe that God has divinely inspired these words to be in front of us at this time. But there's something special about this letter. And I wonder, part of it may be, is that verse right in the beginning is saying this is to everybody else. So the people in Corinth go, you know, our friends up in Berea should read this. So they sent a copy to the Bereans. Then sent a copy to the Thessalonians. For all we know, 
I'm speculating. I like to speculate. But there's some power in what's written here. And then, of course, the grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Charis and Shalom. That is a very typical and very common greeting. There's nothing unusual or abnormal about it. Um, and it's a, just a simple way of saying hello or dear, dear so-and-so. Then we come to verses 4 through 9. Your text has a header called Thanksgiving, where Paul is thanking, not really thanking the Corinthians. If you look very carefully in this section, Paul's thanks are to God for his faithfulness, not to the Corinthians for their commitment. His accent is on God's grace and not the virtue of the Corinthians. When we studied 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he praised them very specifically. Your reputation is known throughout the land. He doesn't say that about these people. Isn't that interesting? He's very gracious, so we'll read it here and we'll look at what he says. But, and there are some allusions to them, but if you look at the very careful phraseology of Paul, he's giving the glory to God, and he's not praising the people. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, before I dig into this a little more detail, I want you to notice something. The name of Christ is mentioned ten times in these first ten verses. Let's go back up to verse 1. Apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, part C, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, given to you in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, the testimony about Christ. Verse 7, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 8, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And verse 10, uh, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, What does that suggest? (laughs) Who's preeminent in this conversation? Jesus Christ is the focus of everything. And this is really amazing when you see what he's setting them up for in verses 10 through 17. But up to this point, I mean, 
it actually startled me and it convicted me because I didn't notice that the first four or five times I read this passage. Has the name of Christ become so common to me that I just glaze over it? Looking for the good stuff? Oh wait, he's the good stuff. But this is repeated so many times in these verses. He doesn't do this in any of his other letters. Not this intently, with this many repetitive uses in such a short period of time. It's the only place you find it so powerfully presented, but in different ways. And as someone who's in the publishing world, who deals with writers, it doesn't feel repetitive. It's brilliantly written. He invokes Christ's name ten times in ten verses, and my editorial pen didn't come out going, get rid of that one. Oh, you're repeating yourself. No. It's very natural as the sole focus of everything he's saying here. So his thanksgiving is to God, to Christ, for the grace that he has given. And of course, we start looking at this in more detail. Verse 4, the grace of God that's given you in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ, is all throughout Paul's writings. It's actually rather unique to him. I think Peter uses it once, but all, every other use in the New Testament is found in Paul's writings. In every way you are enriched in all speech and knowledge. I came across one uh, one. T, uh, preacher teacher who was uh, commenting on this he goes yeah in seminary I sat under this one professor oh, he was so smart but he was so boring I mean you just sat there going please say something interesting you're so brilliant and I'm, I'm learning a lot but I'm trying to stay awake so that I had another professor this guy was engaging he was funny I mean, we're just laughing and having a grand time, and we learned absolutely nothing. But we had a really good time at it. He goes, speech and knowledge. You know, really, they need to be together. You have to have someone who can engage in all things, but also bring the knowledge, and then you can learn and be enriched. That is a rabbit trail. That isn't necessarily an interpretation. But it's a way to look at it. But even as the testimony, this is the Greek word, martyrion, M-A-R-T-Y-R-I-O-N, martyrion, martyrion. So a martyr is someone who dies as a testimony. Who knew? So the testimony about Christ was confirmed you are not lacking. The word lacking is a Greek word called hysterio. <laughs> um, hysteria, to mean lack of brain power, I guess. Uh, but you are not lacking in any gift, and the Greek word for gift is charismati. Charismata, the gifts of the Spirit. The charismati here in this phrase, meaning gift, <clears throat> literally means grace gifts. The word charis 
is the word grace. So charis, mati, means grace, gift. The gifts of the Spirit are the gifts of God by His grace. (coughs) And He basically says, if you are in Christ, you have spiritual gifts. Is that why you might lose it? Because you don't know. No, no. Everybody has a spiritual gift of some sort. So if anyone comes into a church and says, I don't fit in, I have nothing to offer. Yes, you do. You absolutely do. I don't know what that is. You might not even know what that is, but that's when you go to pastors, teachers, elders, and say, I would like to serve in some capacity, I'm not sure what. Uh, what do you need? And they say, well, why don't we try this? And, you, and after a while, you might say, you know, I'm not really suited for this. Um, is there anything else? But you're at least attempting to serve in the body of Christ. The gifts are intended to build the body of Christ. I think last week, <coughs> Pastor Jim used the, uh, uh, the illustration of DNA, that every human being is a being like this with a DNA, but part of the DNA creates a fingernail. Another part of the DNA creates the toenail. Still the same DNA, but two different kinds of nails. Doesn't mean one is right, the other one's wrong, it's just they're different. Oh, and there happens to be also one that creates a nose, some bigger than others. And he said, he mentioned the hair follicles. Uh, he doesn't have any, I'm losing mine. Um, and it's horrible, because I left with this widow's peak that won't go away. Anyway, um, yes, thank you, Dad, Person, for that gift. So it says, you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the apocalypse. That's the Greek word there for revealing. It's the apocalypsin, the end times, for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then later in the passage, it talks about the day of our Lord. This is a statement that God will be faithful to the end for you. He's not giving up on you. So notice what he's doing here. He's thanking God. He's reminding them that they are believers, that they have the foundation of their faith is solid. But they've let things get away. Rather than starting the letter with, you idiots, you're messing everything up. He doesn't do that. <laughs> one, guy's, one guy comments, says, you know, it's always, if you're going to criticize someone or something like that, you know, try to find something nice to say first. You know, and so in the publishing business, when I'm looking at a manuscript and someone's pitching me something one-on-one, I look at it and go, that's a very nice font. Mm. <laughs> oh, you spelled your name correctly. Good for you. Uh, you can't write, but you're a really good formatter. Um, or as he put it, he said, so you come to your child and say, I appreciate that you have a great, great interest in matches and gasoline. <laughs> because without it, we wouldn't have the combustible engine. 
However, you burnt down the garage. <laughs> you know, so, you know, then, you, but if you start with the yelling, then anyway, it's just kind of fun. As I was looking at this, a outline came to my mind. And I wrote it off in the margin. And I have, at the top, I have the, the words, you are. And then I have four bullet points. Looking at this verse, you are in Christ Jesus. It's right there in verse 4. You are enriched in Him. You are not lacking in spiritual gifts. You are sustained until the end. You can see all of those, verse 4, Five, seven, and eight. And the last bullet point, God is faithful. If you want a sermon outline or a devotional, there you go. As Dr. Martin at Grand Canyon used to say, that'll preach. <laughs> it's all right there. This is what he's saying to these people. Remember, you're in Christ. You're enriched by Him. You have spiritual gifts. God is faithful. He will sustain you until the end. A.W. Tozer wrote, A good rule is this. Nothing that comes from God will minister to my pride or self-congratulation. If I'm tempted to be complacent and to feel superior because of advanced spiritual experiences, I should at once go to my knees and repent of the whole thing as I have fallen victim to the enemy. If this position, this idea that you are in Christ and you have all of His fullness makes you feel proud, you have a problem. It, it should be just the opposite. It should humble you completely. And that, I believe, is Paul's hope yeah. as he writes. Yeah. I'm hearing you. How do you respond in humility to somebody who says this to you Thank you. It's not of me, it's all of Christ. That's the easiest way. It's hard. Um, and I've mentioned this before in, our, in this group. Because the, the one time in my life when I have all the accolades and being the rock star is when I'm on faculty at a writer's conference. Everybody wants a piece of me. And you can walk around and you have people standing in line for 40 minutes to try to talk to you. Wherever you go, you see out of the corner of your eyes the people kind of hovering, wanting to have that moment because of what my job represents. I have a, I'm a gatekeeper to their dream of being a publisher. I am so glad I have a wife by the name of Lisa who reminds me that I am not a rock star and that I need to just get rid of myself when I come home because it's very easy to fall into that. So when Paul here, he's not talking about himself, notice, he's talking about Christ. He's also not complimenting the people, he's just reminding them. But let's say someone came up to me and said, you exhibit everything in these verses. You're such a wonderful person. Can I come to your house and have you mentor me? Um, wow, cool.
cool. <laughs> I'm all that is one reaction. The second is, it is an incredible compliment. But the third should be, oh, uh, thank you. I would be glad to be of service to you, but it's not about me. And we have to keep saying it. Because if we don't say it, we don't practice it. It's just so insidious. We've all watched the hubris in our church bring down people like Mark Driscoll and James McDonald. They didn't have a sexual encounter that brought them down. It was their arrogance. And they had surrounded themselves by people who just fed it for 20 years. And they built these kingdoms and bam, it all came crashing down when the hubris got in the way of the gospel. Anyway, that's a, uh, a lovely thought. Let's go on to something more fun. Um, divisions in the church. <laughs> Isn't this going to be fun? All right, there's a story where of the Riverbank Church where it started off as a little thing. You had Helen and Sally who coordinated the Sunday school curriculum for years. Each, each year they organized the classes and the curriculum for the children's Sunday school, but this year was different. Helen had found some new curriculum and thought it was both innovative and interesting. She showed it to Sally and suggested that they use this new curriculum instead of the old one. But Sally disagreed. You see, Sally had helped develop and write the original curriculum and had been used in the church for 10 years. But they agreed that they would take the issue to the senior pastor. Pastor Dan, and let him decide whether to stay with the old curriculum or move to the new. I mean, that's wonderful, that's gracious. Very nice of Sally and Helen to work that out. Let's find a third party who has authority. But you see, Sally was close friends with the pastor's wife. And the night before the meeting, she called the pastor's wife and explained her side of the story. The pastor's wife spoke to Pastor Dan, and the next day, Pastor Dan agreed that they should stick with the original curriculum, and he followed up with an email to Helen saying so. Helen was heartbroken. She was convinced that the new curriculum was better, and then she was angry when she learned that Sally had gone behind her back and made the appeal to the pastor's wife, who influenced Pastor Dan's decision. Now this became complicated because, see, Helen's husband happened to be chairman of the Board of Elders. So when Jack found that Helen, his wife, in, was in tears, he got upset. So at the next board meeting, he brought the issue of the curriculum to the board. In the past, Jack and Pastor Dan had clashed over issues of bringing new and innovative ideas to the church. In a heated session of the board, Jack convinced the elders that not only should the new curriculum be tried, but that Pastor Dan was holding the church back with his traditional views. Within weeks, the entire church was in an uproar. Half were siding with Jack and the elders, and half were siding with Pastor Dan. Ultimately, Jack led a board, the board into a vote of no confidence. Pastor Dan resigned, and 20 families, half of the church, 
left the church with Pastor Dan and formed a new one called the New Beginning Fellowship that met down the street at the local elementary school. Now, there is no Riverbank Church, there is no Helen, there is no Sally, there is no Jack, and there's no Pastor Dan. But doesn't it sound familiar? The names of the churches and the names of the people have been changed to protect the guilty. So I decided to take a look in one of my rabbit trails on what are some things that churches have argued over. And I actually have a real list published by Thomas Rayner, who's the head of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention Education Division. We had, an, there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. And as Tom put it, I think I saw a verse that indicated it can be no more than 1.5 inches longer than the pastor's beard. Um, anyway, he's being sarcastic. There was a fight over whether or not to build a child's playground or use that land for a cemetery. Aren't you dying to know the answer to that one? <laughs> a deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and decided to settle the matter in the parking lot. You could have sold tickets for that MMA match. A church, argue, a church argued and voted to decide if the clock in the worship center should be removed. Those that lost were not happy about the decision. There was a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, whether brown or black, whether it should be two, three, or four drawers. Seriously, in a business meeting in the church. There was a fight over what, which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I wonder who took that photograph. Anyway, there was a dispute over whether or not the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. <laughs> I vote that he wears pants. <laughs> anyway, there was a big argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. It got so heated that one of the members donated a dime so they could move on. There was a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. That's, I mean, that's right there in Hezekiah chapter 4 verse 11. We know the answer to that. Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve the conversation. There were arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve at the annual potluck. My vote would be none, anyway. There was an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs. Because, of course, we know who makes those. <laughs> An argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. A disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, good luck figuring that one out. Oops. I, oh, oh. A church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. 
because it looked like liquor. There was an argument on the church over who has access to the copy machine. Some church's member left a church because one member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. And it resulted in a major fight and a church split. So imagine what they named the new church. Was that Second Hoover Baptist? <laughs> or Second Electrolux Baptist? I mean, seriously. A dispute of whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. A fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. I mean, I think that'd be a great idea. Instead of the doxology, we should just do happy birthday and make everybody feel good. I mean, seriously, sing happy birthday in church. Hmm. An argument of whether or not the fake dusty plants should be removed from the podium. I say give them a little bit of water and they'll just spruce up just fine. We are silly people. These are all real, by the way. None of them were made up. Tom Rainer had made, done a survey of churches saying, what are some of the craziest arguments that you guys have dealt with in your congregation? Um, you know, we had our own challenges at Camelback Bible Church 25, 27 years ago. Every church is made up of broken people. And we can just get all riled up over things that are unimportant. I would agree. What is wrong with you people? Now, I have one other little humor thing that I found, and I'll just do it anyway because I found it, and you're a captive audience. The worst you can do is leave in the middle of it. Uh, but I found a parody of this, the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Now we know the Onward Christians. The Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Here's how it now reads and now sings. Like a halting cavern moves the church of Christ. We, we are feebly faltering toward our timid trist. We are all divided, many bodies we, kept apart by doctrine, lack of charity. Careful Christian pilgrims walk in doubt and fear with the cross of Jesus bringing up the rear. When we let squabbles get in front of the gospel of Christ, we no longer have a testimony, which is why Paul used that word. Our testimony to the world is we are a broke and bickering group of people. There's no place for it. There should not be it. It should not happen. I mean, that scenario that you know, was written up here, the story of Helen and, and Sally, they started out right. But then they let their pride get in the way. And they let it destroy a church over whether or not to use new curriculum or not. Craziness. Absolute craziness. So we come to Paul's church in Corinthians, in Corinth. 
He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Now, before you get all worried about that phrase, because there are some would say that means you have to have 100% agreement in everything and at all times to be an effective church. Now, that would be impossible. It just can't happen. Because we're all different people. We all have opinions. The thing is, there's not a period at the end of that phrase. There's a comma. That you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. There are some people who stop at the word agree and then use it as a hammer on people who are disagreeing with the senior pastor. They are not reading the rest of the verse. It doesn't mean that we need to think alike. We're not clones. There's not a sameness. No, we're not worms. But I guess I would like each of you much better if you always agreed with me. I mean, that is a condition for our friendship, right? Well, no, it's not. It shouldn't be. There is a like-mindedness. There is a unity of same mind and same judgment. But what's chiseled on the front of this entire paragraph is by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you. He doesn't say I dictate to you. He doesn't say I command you. He says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who we represent. Don't have this kind of division. Be of one mind. Be of the same judgment. But why? What's he, what's he heard? Well, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. You have to stop there and go, who's Chloe? I have no idea. Nobody knows. Just someone named Chloe. And the Greek word, actually the phrase means those from Chloe. So there's some who suggest that Chloe may have been a very wealthy um, patron of the church. Maybe the church met in her home. Because remember we had Priscilla and Aquila. We had um, Lydia up in the Philippi. You have very strong people, wealthy people, who could host a large group. So maybe the whole thing met in Chloe's house. We don't know. And when it says from Chloe, those from Chloe, when it says Chloe's people, could it have been that these were slaves? We don't know. Could it have been they were co-workers? Maybe it just they were the first people that were tasked with sending the message to Paul in Ephesus and asking these questions and talking about it. But the report is that there's quarreling among you. James chapter 4, verse 1. It reads, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
the quarreling is obvious. Factions have risen up. Because in verse 12 it says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Well, you have to look at all this. I mean, we all, we all know who Paul is. He's the founder. You know, he's the guy writing the letter. And they want to write it, follow, I follow Apollos. Apollos we met in uh, Acts 18, uh, 19. Um, he was an Alexandrian. So he's Egyptian. Jew. Very articulate. He even says that he was an extremely good speaker. And he came to Ephesus. And then was sent to Corinth. And while Apollos was in Corinth, we have these things happening. So there are some in the church who liked Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. Okay. You can probably guess who they're talking about. Who? Peter. Simon Peter. But he's not called Peter here. This is the Aramaic name. Aramaic is Cephas, Greek is Petrus. Still means rock, still has the same meaning. But the idea is that he's calling him by his Aramaic name, which is unusual. That suggests that Peter was in Corinth at some point. Wow, we didn't know that. There's no record of it anywhere. There's no hint other than this hint. But Peter was all over. I mean, the, the man went far and wide in his ministry. Uh, you know, they, they've tracked his mark in a whole bunch of places. <clears throat> and we all know he ended up in Rome where he was executed. And then there's those who say, I follow Christ. Well, why is that being brought up? I mean, this is like saying, well, I follow Francis Schaeffer. Well, I follow R.C. Sproul. Well... I prefer John Piper. And the other person goes, but I'm the most spiritual one among you. I follow Jesus. Oh, shoot, there's the trump card. We all feel bad now. What Paul's trying to say is, you guys are being silly. This is, he even says here, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He's obviously saying absurd things. Now it's interesting, Chrysostom, who was one of the early church fathers, said that Paul used these four names not because the people were actually using them, but because he didn't want to name the troublemakers. It may have very well have been that there were people that were in there saying, well, I follow George. And one says, well, I follow Bob. Another one says, well, I follow Jim. Now, <clears throat> that's a theory. It's an interesting one, never one I'd ever heard before. <clears throat> the bottom line is they're dividing among themselves rather than acting as if they're in one accord. Now there was a theory brought out in 1831 by F.C. Bauer that there were doctrinal differences between Paul, Apollos, Peter, and those that follow Christ. And that this whole thing was a doctrinal issue. Now, there's a problem with that, because if Paul disagreed with Apollos' doctrine, he would not have invited him to come back to Corinth in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verse 2, I think it is, yeah. And 
he had already reconciled with Peter back at the Jerusalem Council. We have that in Acts chapter 15. So there was not a dispute on the, who was preaching Christ correctly. It's interesting, when Luther, Martin Luther, heard that the followers, that his followers were calling themselves Lutherans, he was furious. This is what he wrote. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine. Go back to your question earlier. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? May God protect us against the preachers who please all the people and enjoy good testimony from everyone. Hearers should say, I don't believe in my pastor, but he tells me of another Lord whose name is Christ. Martin Luther could not stand the fact that people called themselves Lutherans. And he's right. He shouldn't have. In fact, there's a story from John Wesley. I'll find it here. He was noticing all the various factions, and he had a dream where he was ushered to the gates of hell. And at the gates, he asked the gatekeeper, are there any Presbyterians there? Any Presbyterians here in hell? And the answer was, oh, absolutely. Are there any Congregationalists? Yes, there are. Baptists? Yes. But then he asked, well, are there Methodists in hell? Because remember, Wesley founded the Methodist Church and was immediately answered, well, of course there are. So, bam, now he's at the gates of heaven. And Wesley asked, are there any Presbyterians here? Nope. Are there any Baptists or Congregationalists here? Nope, not a one. Well, certainly there must be Methodists here. No, not a single Methodist. And Wesley said, well, then who's inside? There's only Christians here. And that's the point of this entire section. We don't create these factionalisms saying, I am of U of A, I am of ASU. I go to Scottsdale Bible Church. Oh, I go to Camelback Bible Church. Oh, I go to this church. Seriously, no. We are to be in one mind. Because Paul writes, I thank God I baptized none of you. When actually this passage is actually kind of funny if you think about it. I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Oh, yeah, I did baptize um, the household of Stephanus. And you know, come to think of it, I can't remember who I baptized. <laughs> one, one scholar actually said I, this is his favorite passage in all of the New Testament. Because it shows the humanity. It's not all doctrinal formality. <clears throat> you have Paul dictating a letter. And he goes, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't baptize anybody. Well, yeah, I baptized Crispus and Gaius. And, oh, yeah, I, and, and Stephanus. And, you know, come to think of it, I have no idea who I baptized. It doesn't matter. And that's the point. It doesn't matter. Because Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of his power. And if you wonder what he meant by that, 
He writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Paul is a great orator. We know that. We've read his speeches. They're amazing. We've read his writings. He's brilliant. But even he says, it's not me. It's not me. So the divisions that come in the church, if you start finding yourself disagreeing with something, the first person you look to is yourself. What is your motivation for your disagreement? Do you have a case? And then, are you willing to lose the argument? Hopefully you are. You can make a statement, you can give an opinion, but if the answer goes against you, then you say, well, I'm taking my tithes and offerings and I'm going somewhere else because you made me unhappy. Well, the church is not here to make you happy. The church here is a body of Christ to glorify the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And His blessings are on us and through us to others. And that is the whole focus of this passage. Let me uh, end it with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for our time. Went fast. Faster than I think any of us imagined it would. Your word is so rich. It's so full. There's so much practical wisdom here. And it's easy for us to set it aside and say it doesn't apply to me when actually it really does. These words are written to all of us from 2,000 years ago. And let us try to take these messages and these words of wisdom and put them on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.